Okay, I'm going to go back to the old way with this microphone. This way I can talk in it, and it's also used as a weapon if necessary. <laughs> Only one time I thought I was going to have to use it as that. Someone charged the pulpit a while ago. Not here, all the way back in Soldiers and Sailors. And would have been appropriate if it happened in the Hall of Valor, wouldn't it? Would have been great. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5. How about those pirates, Mark? I thought you were magic for a minute there. You used to all that applause. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and we're dealing with a passage that I think is the most important passage in the Bible in many regards. Now, you could say that about a lot of different passages, but so we are loosely correlating that passage in its entirety. I'm calling it an apocalypse for right now, or we could call it face-to-face with an apocalypse for 2023, whatever you want to call it. It's something that's right in our face right now, and it's the most encouraging thing we could be looking at in conjunction with the totality of this little homily called Hebrews. If you want a model sermon, there it is. Hebrews is a sermon, believe it or not. It's a homily, and it's a heaven-sent one. It serves as a model for all sermons. And as I continue in the ministry that God has given to me, I'm going to be moving into more and more sermon and preaching than I have in the past, preaching, believe it or not, rather than teaching. It's been a mix up till now, teaching and preaching, but it's going to move, I think, I think, into a realm of preaching. I spent a lot of time with the Lord in prayer, and in by prayer I mean listening to him. I'd much, much more rather listen to what he has to say than have him hear what I have to say which amounts usually to help me, Lord, in its gist. But this is an apocalypse for right now. Last week we did a thing called a five-course meal. That was actually part five. And this is part six of an apocalypse for right now, interweaved with Hebrews in its totality. Second Corinthians 5.19 is what Karl Barth called the decisive saying of the New Testament. It is the decisive saying of the New Testament. Everything that God wants to say to us in the gospel, in the word, in the scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is said in that decisive saying. And not for nothing did Karl Barth speak of the decisive New Testament saying in 2 Corinthians 5 19, that it was the world, he said, with emphasis on the world in that case, it was the world which God reconciled to himself in Jesus Christ. It was the world which God reconciled to himself in Jesus Christ. Now, I considered that statement, that it's the decisive New Testament saying, and I agree with that. I agree that it is the decisive New Testament saying. In fact, we're going to be bridging some subjects and broaching some subjects in the future that are going to be rather revelatory in themselves. I asked the question, what is the difference between God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself 
And in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. What's the difference? They're both decisive sayings. That means they're both very strictly determinative sayings. What's the difference between those two sayings? And in one sense, there is no difference because when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that was what we call the cosmogenetic moment. That was the moment when God made the new heavens and the new earth in the beginning, in Christ, N-R-K, as the Greek has it in Genesis 1.1. So is 2 Corinthians 5.19 the decisive saying of the New Testament? Yes. And if not the only one, there are very few rivals for it in the New Testament. One of them is Hebrews 9.26, though, and that's where we're interweaving the two. Hebrews 9.26b, the second part, says this. But now once he was, and that's an aorist timeless tense, so we could say he is revealed at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin through the sacrifice of himself. That, too, is a decisive state, statement. If you were to beg God to be concise in everything he wanted to say to us, he would say, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He would say, now, once, at the termini of the ages, Christ appeared, was manifested for the removal of sin through the sacrifice of himself. When Jesus Christ removed sin by his self-sacrifice, it, it, was, it was by becoming sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, that is, knew no pleasures of sin, knew no acquiescence to sin, knew no submission to sin, knew no commission of sin, knew no sins of omission. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we would be made the very righteousness of God in him. That we there is the world, not just us. We, the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them. Not charging their transgressions to them, the world. So that we, the world would be made the righteousness of God in him. His name shall be called the Lord our righteousness, says Jeremiah 23, 6. And that means that Jesus Christ is indeed Yahweh, our righteousness. God has made him to be for us wisdom and sanctification and righteousness and redemption. Christ is our sanctification Christ is our righteousness or our justification. And by that I mean the world's justification, the world's sanctification, the world's redemption. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by becoming sin himself. And put away death by that very transaction.
Sin is a great stinger. The sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. The stinger. Death is the hornet. Sin is the stinger. Jesus received the stinger. But in the receiving of the stinger, the hornet dies. Death dies. The stinger went into the Lord Jesus Christ. It had a sting to it that we can't even imagine, the sting of death. Becoming sin. He took the sting to himself. That sting is the sting of hell and of death, the sting of Hades. Oh, death, where is your sting now? As you would say to a hornet that already stung you, where's your stinger? Well, it's in me, and the hornet is dead. The strength of sin, the strength of death, the strength of death is sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, in becoming sin, removed the sting from death, and therefore death died in his dying in death. And so the church, the body of Christ, the new covenant community, we become witnesses to life. We are witnesses to life, witnesses against death in a culture that more and more is choosing death. And by choosing death, choosing its own death, choosing cultural death, social death, choosing the death of a civilization. In the midst of all this, we are witnesses to life. The gates of Hades that were opened for Jesus Christ, and he went in and freed the captives and took the keys and has the keys and says, don't be afraid, I have the keys of death and of Hades. He's made us all gate crashers. The gates of Hades can't hold up against the church. That doesn't mean that the gates are coming after us. It means we're coming after the gates. We're gate crashers. We crash the gates of Hades, which is the gates of death, in our witness of life. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me. And he had already said, I am the resurrection and the life. To be witnesses unto him or to him is to be witnesses of life. And as witnesses of life, we are witnesses against death, that which a culture has chosen. And the reason the culture hates the church is because it has chosen death, and the church is a witness against death and a witness of life. You shall be witnesses of me, Jesus said, who is the resurrection and the life. We're the best possible witnesses you can have. Because in Ephesians 2.5, we were dead in sins and we've been made alive together in Christ. We're a living epistle, not written with ink. We're not a dead letter that the, word read, that the world reads. We're living epistles, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And I think I'll bring more of this on Wednesday. If you haven't heard the Wednesday messages, they are online. And until we get around to being, meeting again on Wednesdays, and even taking a question and answer period from time to time. Until we do that, I hope that you'll pay attention to the Wednesday messages. They have as much weight and value as the Sunday messages do, and they have a sort of a continuity with them. 
We are competent ministers of the new covenant, says 2 Corinthians 3.6, and as such, we have a ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.18. That thought actually holds from 2 Corinthians 3.6 all the way through 5.18. We've been entrusted with the word of reconciliation, which is also the word of the cross, which is also the word of grace, which is also the good word of God, which we have tasted, and as we go forth, God is making his appeal in us, be reconciled to God because you've been reconciled to God. Be what you are. Become what you are. Realize what you are and align to it by faith. We don't say, as I've said many times before, believe and you'll be reconciled to God. But you've been reconciled to God. Believe it. Your believing it does not determine your eternal life or your eternal destiny. What determined your eternal destiny and your eternal life was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's already a done deal. We testify to a done deal, and therefore that is our evangelization of the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging their trespasses to them because, in effect, he charged their trespasses to the sinless one. It's as if he was guilty of the sins that we have committed. That It was as if he committed them, even though, of course, he didn't. And he received the sting of death. And the strength of sin, on the other hand, is the law of all things. The law came in as if Adam's problem and the human problem wasn't bad enough. The law came in so that the transgressions would increase and how they increased. And Paul said, I wouldn't have even known that it was wrong to do such and such or wrong to lust or covet until the law came around and said, thou shalt not covet. Now I'm coveting all over the place. The law came that the transgressions would increase. But where the transgressions and sin itself increased, God's grace superabounded and abounded much more. That's what Romans 5 is all about. And Romans 5 is also something that correlates splendidly with 2 Corinthians. Once we know that we've been reconciled to God in Christ, we go forth saying, know the Lord. Remember the new covenant? When the future world is finally realized, none of, none of you will say to his fellow citizens, as the Greek text, his fellow citizen, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest to the least, says the Lord. They will all know me. To know the Lord is to know the God of peace who reconciled us to God in Christ. To know his work to know his finished work is to know his mercy, is to know his person. So not for nothing did Karl Barth speak of the decisive New Testament saying in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that it was the world which God reconciled to himself in Jesus Christ. Maybe competitive with that decisive saying is God loved the world in this way so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not only not perish, that's already a given, 
but have and experience the life of the coming age now. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. The world would be saved. Do you know you're here for the world, not for yourself? The church doesn't exist for itself. It exists for the world. God gave his son to the world. The son came and lived not for himself and gave himself not for himself, but for the world. He exists in us, and if he lives in us truly, he lives in us for the world, not against the world. It seems that way sometimes but for the world. The crux of the decisive saying of the New Testament is simply God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their transgressions, meaning not taking into account their transgressions, not even thinking about them. Even in abbreviation, the whole essence of the New Testament is there. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You say, but what about the Christmas story? Yeah, God was in Christ from his incarnation and birth, reconciling the world to himself. Peace on earth. God's goodwill toward mankind, the world. God was in Christ, the infant, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ throughout the gospel stories and all the narratives when he was raising the dead and healing the sick and driving out demons in a very militant and aggressive action, bringing the kingdom of God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself at Gethsemane at Gabbatha, in the pavement in front of Pilate. Before Caiaphas, God was in Christ as Christ carried his cross. God was in Christ as he was nailed to it. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. As nailed to the cross, he said, forgive them. As nailed to the cross, he said, it is finished. Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't pick that up. John did because I think John, the beloved disciple, was close enough to hear him say that. Before he cried out in a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. At which time a curious thing happened. The veil the very thick veil in the temple. The second curtain into the Holy of Holies was torn from the top to the bottom. Certain priests were in there and saw that. Think they were converted? Yeah, they were. Rocks shook, people were raised from the dead, walked around Jerusalem. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When Jesus said to Telestai, it had been done. The world was reconciled. The new creation had been made. 
The world is reconciled to God. How do you look at the world now then? It's amazing how we look at people. We see people maybe that we see every day and we have instant judgments about their weight, their appearance, the clothes they wear, their demeanor. Oh, I heard they're not even working. All this stuff goes in our minds to, you know, they're... I knocked on the door to give him their mail and he was just there with his BVDs on. So you think about them. This is how we think of people. But when we think this way, it's amazing how things change. God was in Christ reconciling them. They're reconciled to God in Christ. God made peace by the blood of the son of his love with them. You start thinking differently toward those people. All, and you don't prejudge and you don't judge and you don't go by race or ethnicity. You don't go by gender. You don't go by the particular brand of sin that they have and you got one too. The particular form of lust that may drive them and different things in their lives. You know, you judge them as being reconciled with Christ, with God in Christ. They have been reconciled. So what if they don't know it? <laughs> Let's tell them then. That's the whole point of what it means to be the new covenant community. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, which means the world is reconciled to God. Which means, why is the church still in the world if not to witness to the world its reconciliation? Why else are we here? And so, this is the message. The word of reconciliation. That we, the competent ministers of the new covenant, and God made us competent, that's the message that we proclaim with speech and with actions by our words and our deeds in Hebrews 13, 21. And that's going to be a climactic, that's the climactic verse of the main body of the whole homily, by the way. God of peace, the God of peace is the God who secured reconciliation, led up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd who's now the great shepherd, meaning all the world are his sheep. All humanity of all times are his sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep raised him up, led him up from the dead. Strengthen you into every good word and deed. And so it's by these words and by these deeds, with speech and with actions, in our life and livingness as we live not by the fleshly wisdom of the world, but by the grace of God in 2 Corinthians 1.12. We follow after peace with everybody. Hebrews 12.14. If you have your Bibles, look at it. Hebrews 12.14. Follow after peace with everyone. Notice the poetic structure there. Follow after peace. Pursue peace with everyone. Why? Because God reconciled everyone. The God of peace reconciled everyone to himself. 
Follow after peace with everyone. And then it says, this is the one that people, Christians don't like as much, and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. We see Jesus. We see Jesus. We see Jesus in the scripture by the Holy Spirit. If the world is going to see Jesus, it has to begin seeing him in you. But it won't see him if there's no sanctification setting us apart from the old man, the old humanity, the lusts of the flesh, as they're called in Romans 13. If we're putting on the new man, who is the new man that we put on? Why doesn't it say new man or woman? It says man, because the man is the man Christ Jesus that we put on. Whether you're a woman or a man, you put on the man Christ Jesus. The new man that we put on, Ephesians 4.24, the new man that we put on, Colossians 3.10, happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 13.14. In Paul's last epistle, he cleared that all up. I'm sure he was probably asked, what do you mean put on the new man? Who's the new man? Who's the new man? He said, well, let me put it this way. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the new man. In him is the new creation. He is the new creation. He is the new humanity. He is the reality of the new humanity, and he is the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the reality of God, for all that is God and all that can be called God is in him bodily. He is the reality of uncreated divinity, and he is the reality of created humanity, and the, he is the beginning of the creation of God, as Revelation 3.14, as he announces it. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world is the same one, Christ, in whom God reconciled the world to himself. What is the act that founded the new creation? The act of the slaughtering of the Lamb. When did the new creation come about, and therefore when did creation as God intended it from the beginning occur? When did it come about? When Jesus said, Tetelestai, from the cross. The passion of the slaughtered lamb is the action of the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. If anyone is in Christ, there's the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, and everyone is in Christ, whether they know it or not, you're no longer in Adam who dies, but in Christ in whom all will be made alive. You see, we know things that the world doesn't know. It doesn't make us superior to them. It doesn't make us sanctimonious. It doesn't make us in any way superior to the world at all or to any member of the human race at all. But we have to go and say to them, know the Lord. We say to our fellow citizen, know the Lord. And that's the same way as saying, be reconciled to God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I've tasted, I can tell you, he's good. He's gracious. He's kind. His word is sweeter to me than the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 103. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because I've tasted, you have tasted and seen that he is Christotes, gracious, merciful, kind, gracious. Be reconciled to God. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Pursue peace with everyone, it says. Everyone. 
because, and sanctification without which no one, notice how that plays off, everyone, no one. Follow after peace with everyone because everyone has been reconciled to God in Christ. And though, follow sanctification, which means you don't win the world by becoming like the world. But you don't win the world by pretending you're better than the world either. That's called sanctimony, not sanctification. Sanctimonious Christians have scattered the world. Sanctified Christians gather the world. Follow after peace with everyone because it's legitimate. Act in your life toward them like they're reconciled to God. Act toward them like they're reconciled to God because they are. Follow after peace with everyone and follow sanctification too because without that, no one will see the Lord. That means no one's going to see Jesus in you unless you're set apart from the values, norms, virtue signaling of the world. Unless you're set apart from the sanctimonious, pseudo-pious stuff that passes for Christianity, has nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, it's the antithesis of Christianity. So it's a poetic structure. It's a remarkable verse for many reasons. Pursue peace with everyone and sanctification without which no one. Peace is to be pursued with everyone because everyone has been reconciled to God in Christ. God has made peace with everyone by the blood of the cross of the Son of his love. You may pursue peace with people that are your neighbors for 10 years before you ever tell them the gospel. And they'll say something like, you know, I'm at ease around you. I, I, there's something about you. There's a peacefulness about you. And I feel at ease with you. I don't feel judged by you. God made peace with everyone by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. That's one of my favorite things to say. He made peace by the blood of the son of his love. The blood of the cross. That's just combining Colossians 1.20 and conferring back to 1.13. The son of his love. He made peace by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. Peace with who? The heavens and the earth. That's a pretty good start. With everyone. To pursue peace with everyone is exactly what it means that we who know that we've been reconciled to God and know that they have been reconciled to God, even if they don't know it, we know it. So we say, know the Lord in our actions of peace. We're not afraid. We don't distort our message into the warning of the terrors of some hell. That's the opposite of the gospel. The opposite of the gospel. And those who purvey that kind of gospel are evil. Yes, they are. We follow after peace with them. As Romans says, as much as lies in you. So 
So it's exactly what it means. We that have been reconciled to God have the ministry and message of reconciliation. We exist for the reconciled world. The world who by and large do not know the Lord because they do not yet know that he is the God of peace who has reconciled them to himself in Messiah Jesus, his son, the savior of the world. And they may even go to church to have that ignorance strengthened. But there's another aspect to our life and livingness and our ministry and message of reconciliation, and it's sanctification. We pursue sanctification. Paul said to a young pastor, Paul said to Timothy, flee fornication. Run from it like a fugitive. Yes, it's an acceptable norm and standard in the world as it exists in your time, Timothy, but run from it and pursue righteousness instead. Pursue sanctification instead. Pursue a set-apartness instead. The world talks a certain way. You don't talk that certain way. The world has an ideology. It signals its virtues, which aren't virtues at all. They're just acceptable norms to a culture that's chosen death. You don't go there. To pursue peace with everyone exactly because everyone has been reconciled. We exist for the reconciled world, the world who by and large do not know the Lord. But we pursue sanctification because no one will see the Lord. No one will see Jesus in us without it. In our pursuit of peace with everyone, we don't compromise our newfound values. We don't become like them to win them. We are transformed into the image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another by the Lord the Spirit so that his image of grace and mercy and kindness is seen in us. We pursue peace with everyone because everyone has been reconciled by God to God in Christ. We pursue sanctification, which is holiness and set-apartness. It means just almost the exact opposite of what holiness people say holiness means. Without which no one will see the Lord. This pursuit of sanctification is not a quest to be holier than others and then to walk around as if you are. I was once talking to a rock and roll singer at the Holiday Inn. I worked there 40 hours a week while I was going to Bible college. And Andy Dio was his name. He was the rock singer. And he came out to me one time and he says, you know, you go to that Bible college, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, you know, some of them walk around like their excrement is ice cream. He didn't say excrement. <laughs> and so I got along with him very well, and I, I, Andy and I talked, and 
Who are those people that sang uh, Diamond Girl? Who are those two guys? Yeah. Yeah, they were there too. I talked to one of them, and I, they asked me about what I believed and witnessed to them a little bit, and they were of the Baha'i faith, and we went back and forth. But I, I felt at ease with Andy, and I agreed with him about that, about the ice cream thing. <laughs> and so we got along. We get, see, we got along because... I wasn't being sanctimonious with him. I was sanctified by the word of God, but he didn't see it coming through me like I'm righteous and I'm holy. But he knew that I wasn't going to go a lot of places where he was going to go, too. He knew that, too, but he didn't. It was no big deal. So we had a good conversation. I wonder where he is now. And so... We pursue sanctification. In one sense, no one will see the Lord without sanctification. That means that without sanctification, none of us are going to see the Lord in the beatific vision. But thanks be to God, God made him to be our sanctification. So we will see him. This pursuit of sanctification, a set-apartness, is not a quest to be holier than others. It is rather a pursuit of intimacy with the Lord. That's all it is. It's a pursuit of intimacy with the Lord Jesus. No one will see the Lord apart from sanctification from a process, that is, by which the New Covenant community, the apostolate Atlat, sets apart Christ as Lord in their hearts where Christ exists in the heart's most precious, holy of holies. Something that has to happen before we're truly ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us about our hope. No one asks us about our hope if we're hopeless. If we're moping. Oh, let's go over to that moping Christian who's always moping and complaining and watching the news and saying how bad everybody is and ask them for the reason for their confident hope. Doesn't happen. No one asks about the hope of a moper. If we're hopeless in our demeanor, in our speech, in our deeds, nobody comes up to a complainer, someone who's bitching and moaning all the time, all day long, and says, where'd you get your peace? Where'd you get your contentment? Godliness with contentment is great gain. In a time in which people want to consume more and more and get a better this, better this, bigger this, and bigger this, and a house with two pools, four cars, and an electric vehicle that might take you 150 miles before you crash and burn in the desert and are stuck and don't have gas anywhere around. And if your $8,000 battery burns up and they can't put the fire out, you, so you have your little EVs, and now they want to put them in tanks to fight wars with. Oh, that's great. What happened to that whole battalion of tanks? They stalled in the desert. And people are running at them with rocket launchers and blowing them up, just like shooting ducks. The point is we want more and more. We don't realize the wealth of contentment with what we have. I want to be rich, and by rich I mean I want to be content with a little. I want to be content with just enough. I love living life when I remember the days when I had materially just enough. I was so happy. 
content with human happiness. We don't always have human happiness. Most of, our happy, most of my happiness has been from the word of God. There's lots of things that make people humanly happy out there that I don't have a human happiness about. I have happiness in the word. But godliness with contentment, practical sanctification coupled with contentment is great wealth. If only people realize that wealth comes from contentment with what you have, not by having more and more, which is the opposite of wealth. It's the greatest poverty you can ever have. Is if you, and, and recently it was interesting to hear Jim Carrey, who recently came to the Lord, say, I wish everyone, he said, could be rich and famous just so they could find out that that can't make you happy. Good point. Now, I know this is getting to be more like a fireside chat, but at least the fire we're by the side of isn't hell. So in one sense, no one of us, none of us is going to see the Lord without sanctification. But thanks God, thanks to God, God has made him to be our sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30. But there's a practical sanctification that we partake of that the world doesn't see Jesus in us unless we've pursued sanctification. In other words, unless we've prioritized the word of God. Unless we've made the, the word of God as the first point of contact in our mind about things, about thinking about things, about values. God has made him to be our sanctification, our righteousness, that means our justification and our total redemption. He that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. That's why Jesus, our sanctifier, is not ashamed to call all the members of the human race, not just Christians, brothers and sisters. That's why when getting the disciples, or when he greeted the disciples after his resurrection, he was greeting a bunch of men who forsook him and ran and cowered in a room locked. Didn't stop him, the locked door. He just appeared. And what did he say? Peace to you. Peace to you, losers. <laughs> now just peace to you. They all forsook the shepherd. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Oh, they scattered. His chief, especially the ones that said, I'll never scatter. I'll never forsake you. I'll go to death for you. Yeah. Just heard a rooster crow for the third time, and you just denied him that you even knew him with a curse attached to it. And he comes and says, peace to you. I got something for you, Peter. Really? Yeah. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Well, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Saul of Tarsus, you persecutor of the church, motivated by murderous intent. I'm Jesus whom you've persecuted. You're persecuting me. So I'm going to commission you to be the greatest apostle of the church age. The one who brings the ministry of reconciliation. You better than anybody else knows because I just said to you, peace, Saul. 
God, my Father, has reconciled you to himself. You don't need to reconcile God to man. God needed to reconcile man to God. God never had a problem. God never had hostility toward man. God never had enmity toward man. Man had enmity toward God. God reconciled us to himself, not charging us with our trespasses and transgressions. In his resurrection, he had a message of reconciliation, a ministry of reconciliation. He summed it up by saying, peace to you, in John 20, 19. His word to them was peace. More than that, though, Jesus was their peace as he is our peace, for in him, in the body of his flesh through death, God abolished not only the hostility and the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles, he also abolished the wall of partition between himself and mankind, the enmity coming from man's side. Not God's side. Man fell out with God and fell out with his fellow man. The hostilities between man and man. For God loved the world in such a way as to give his only eternally begotten son. God reconciled us, the world, to him, not him to us, the world. That didn't need to happen. So we're to pursue practical sanctification by allowing God to continually convert us. And by conversion, you talk about something like a moral conversion. Well, does that mean that we have to become part of the moral majority and march on this and this and that? And take this political stand or this political stand. No, a moral conversion means that you are converted from seeking your own interests to seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. All have forsaken me, Paul said. Titus went here, this guy went here. Only one person, he said, was like sold with me, and it's Timothy. All the rest were seeking their own interests and not the interests of Jesus Christ. That, to me, is the most tragic statement in the New Testament. Philippians 2.20 and 21. Certain tests happen in a church to reveal who is pursuing his own interests, her own interests, and who is truly pursuing the interests of Jesus Christ. Nobody gets tested on that level more than the pastor-teacher. But we all get tested. So what happens when you find that your whole life has been pursuing your own interests and not the interests of Jesus Christ? Maybe a moral conversion, which is a transfer of pursuing your own self-interest to pursuing the interests of Jesus Christ. And he exists for the world. For its reconciliation. And we know the spiritual conversion. Well, that's just when the love of God pour, is poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The love of God. By pursuing their own interest, and God will reveal it. But when he reveals it, what do you do? What if he revealed to you that you've been after your own personal interests above the interests of Jesus Christ? You haven't served the ministry of Jesus Christ 
for the interest of Jesus Christ. Maybe you started out that way, but then all of a sudden you deviated, and now you've pursued your own interests. And you repent about things, but then you go from repentance quickly to calculation. How can I work this? Well, when that happens, it's just a matter of acknowledging the reality that that's what I've been doing, and a moral conversion will be worked in you by the Holy Spirit so that you begin to pursue the interests of Jesus Christ. When all forsook Paul, they did so because they were seeking their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Paul had gotten to the place where he knew that his pursuit was after the interests of Jesus Christ, which is sanctification in his case. By pursuing their own interests and not the interests of Jesus Christ, they were not pursuing sanctification. Therefore, they lost the privilege of having the Spirit manifest the life of Jesus in their mortal bodies. Therefore, no one saw the Lord in them because the Lord was not manifested in them by the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet worked or they do not permit the Holy Spirit to work that conversion into them. People do not see the Lord in those who do not seek the Lord's interests, but only in those who are pursuing the interests of Jesus Christ, who are minded like Christ, who are controlled by the love of Christ. There we're back to 2 Corinthians 5.14. We're to pursue practical sanctification by allowing God to continually convert us by a spiritual conversion by which the love of God is poured out on our hearts, by the spirit of sanctification, he's called. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 1.4. Sanctification that is not led, directed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit is mere sanctimony. Smug and critical self-righteousness. What the American Heritage College Dictionary describes as, quote, an unwarranted attitude of moral or social superiority. Sanctification is the antithesis of sanctimony. Sanctification is conformity into the image of the Lord without which no one will see the Lord in us. It is God who sanctifies us. God the Father sanctifies us by and in the truth. And his word is the truth. Sanctify them, Father, by your truth. Oh, and your word is truth. Remember when it was all about the word to you? Remember? If you can't remember, that's tragic. If you have to remember, that's tragic. If you can say, well, it still is, and it never has not been that. I've been here for the word. Not for socializing, although that's an added benefit, a wonderful one sometimes. We pursue sanctification by desiring the milk of the word like newborn babies. They clamor for it. The word sanctifies us and makes us see Jesus with enlightened eyes. And when we keep looking to him, we become more and more like him. To the point where others see the Lord in us, but no one sees the Lord in a sanctimonious Christian.
You turn on TV, what's he going to tell me? Is he going to tell me that God reconciled me in Christ? Well, I haven't seen, you know what, I almost, I listened, we had Sirius XM was taken away just for a little while, so I started listening back to Christian radio just for kicks, and I said, you know what I said? I got to get back on there. One guy was talking about political things and how we should be politically active. Another guy was talking about dreams and how dreams lead you. And I kept listening. Who has ever said God was in Christ reconciling the world? A guy said he's an evangelist. A woman said she's an evangelist. They never said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. They said, you better do this and you better do this or God's going to do this. And you look in and this guy, oh, he says he's an evangelist. What's he going to say? Plant your seed. Really? What's my seed? It's springtime. Oh, it's money. Oh, he wants me to plant money. And he tells me it's going to multiply. Bullshit. <laughs> he's giving me the God. That's not the gospel. If you've got a platform and you say you're an evangelist, then the most, and you skip the decisive saying of the New Testament that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and you don't ever mention that reality, you're not an evangelist. You're not pursuing sanctification. You're certainly not pursuing peace with everyone. What am I doing? I'm not pursuing peace with people who say they're evangelists who don't have the message of peace. There's a, there is a confrontation there. Does that mean I don't love them? No, I love them so much, I wish they would have the right message. Sanctimonious Christians are professing saints that do more to scatter people, repel them, turn them off to Christianity, rather than gathering people to Jesus. On the other hand, we don't win the world by becoming like the world, by being conformed to the norms and values of the current zeitgeist. The world doesn't see the Lord in a community or a church who is compromised and conformed to the mold of the evil age. If you want to be like the world, you can't be like the world like the world can. So the world will just look at you trying to become like the world and failing. You can't do it. The sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light. The world knows how to be the world better than the church. So when the church tries to be like the world to win the world, the world laughs because they're not as good at being the world as the world is. You're not as good at it. But you get salty. When you get salty, you get salt of the earth. You're different. There's, the difference isn't sanctimony. The difference is patience in testing, perseverance, peace, confident hope in a destiny. My friend John Kenyon lost another sister. He has 11 sisters. And he, she passed into the presence of the Lord. And my sister Sandy said two nights ago, she said to one of her other sisters, Mary, she said, I'm waiting for Jesus. He came and he received her to himself. But I texted John, my friend, since we were four years old. And I said, I know that, because I thought about it for a minute. And I thought, what if it was one of my sisters I lost? And I felt that sting, that pain. And indeed, John was feeling that. And I said to him, John, I know that your sorrow is pretty sharp right now. And it's softened a little bit, though, because I know you have faith. 
and that you have the consolation that is in Christ Jesus and that you know that she's truly home now. And his text back to me was much more meaningful. And he said, sometimes I forget how much pain we can go through when we lose a loved one, but I also had to remember that we have, that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us a far more glorious destiny. We have, what a conversation in the midst of loss. I think it works a little better than saying, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Keep them, please. How about words of peace and words of sanctification and words of confident hope and words of consolation. If there's any consolation in Christ, then oh, there is. If there's any comfort, manifest that. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. Once you were darkness, now you're light in the Lord. Let your light so shine among men that they see your deeds and hear your speech. A church that's pursuing sanctification will surely, and this means a lot to me, give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry will not be blamed. That means so much to me as I end, get to the closer to the end than the beginning of my ministering to the Lord. So, on the one hand, we're not sanctimonious. On the other hand, we don't win the world by trying to become like the world. The world doesn't see the Lord in a compromised community either. It secretly despises and, and holds them in contempt. A church that applauds perversity, who murmur and complain about just about everything, just like the majority of the Exodus generation, who constantly challenged Moses, who was finally forced to call them a crooked and perverse generation, in Deuteronomy 32.5, echoed into Philippians 2.15. Moses certainly wasn't sanctimonious, He was sanctified, and he didn't come down from the mountain where he was in intimate communion with God and applaud the orgy he was met with at the bottom of the mountain. He smashed those things, took the golden calf, melted it down, put it in water, and made the people drink it. So a church that's truly pursuing sanctification will surely give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry will not be blamed, rightly blamed. They will certainly make provision for what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Just as important in that context, in the sight of men, as in the sight of the Lord. Well, we're doing what's right in the sight of the Lord, hell with men, no. In the sight of the Lord and men. Render unto God what's due to God and render to Caesar. Jesus was just as serious about that. What's due to Caesar. Do that which provides integrity 
before God. Yes, and just as importantly, integrity before men. So as 2 Corinthians 8.21 combined with 2 Corinthians 6.3 says, and this is our 10th affirmation, I'm ready to close. In doing this, we make provision for what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Sometimes I've actually had a plan to do something. I'm positive that in the sight of the Lord it would be perfectly the right thing to do. And you're all settled on it, and you're very happy about that. But then the Lord will say to you, but what about in the sight of men? And you go, oh, come on, really? Yeah, that too. You have a ministry of reconciliation to the world, to follow after peace, to provide to the eyes of men something that they can find integrity in. Honesty in, dignity in. Because even the world has a standard. Almost everybody in the world, even people that are given over to immorality, have a sense of what's right in the sense of human dignity and integrity and the right thing and honesty, etc. Business dealings of honesty, etc. In doing this, however, we don't exist to please men, but please God. And in pleasing God, it will please all people who have values that derive from or conform to divine established norms and commonly decent practice. It will render to God what's God's and render to Caesar what's legitimately Caesar's, but is always rendering to God first and then to Caesar. And if ever Caesar requires that which we render to God and what's only due to God, then we render to God and not to Caesar. If Caesar, for example, wants worship, uh-uh, we choose God. It gets you persecuted. More and more, our, the state, the governmental state of our nation is becoming more and more godlike and will maybe even someday require that we worship at its altar. No way. We render unto God what's due to God. And what's due to God is worship. No one sees the Lord in a hostile and hateful church. But no one sees the Lord in a compromising and compromised church either. We thread the needle here. Pursue peace with everyone because everyone has been reconciled to God whether they know it or not. But pursue sanctification too because without it they won't see in you anything like the Lord that you're telling them about. What a balanced verse that is in Hebrews 12, 14. And how does it go with our ministry of reconciliation? Because our ministry of reconciliation is not just a word of reconciliation, but it is speech acts, acts that speak and speech that acts, all performed under the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll be amazed how many people you win first by your demeanor and second by your words down the road.
If we keep gazing at the image of the Lord as the Lord the Spirit presents him in the word, we'll be changed into his image, guaranteed. But it'll be from one degree of glory to the next. It'll be imperceptible change. If it was perceptible, you'd say, well, I'm a lot like the Lord now. You never hardly ever know that. You don't even, Moses came down, his face was shining. He didn't know it. Somebody had to tell him, your face is shining. And then he, he figured out, I better put a veil over my face, not because it's shining, but because the glory's fading. The shine is going off the penny here. Yeah, it was, because it was the glory of an old covenant that was fading. By this pursuing of sanctification is simply gazing at the image of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, spirit of sanctification, changes us into his image from one degree of glory to another. There's already been a change, a radical change of the human situation and the universal situation when one died for all and all died. When God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, already that radical change happened in Christ. There is yet to happen a change in which all will be made alive in resurrection life in Jesus Christ. No one will ever have to say, know the Lord. No one will ever have to say, be reconciled to God. Because all will be not only reconciled to God, but know it. And know the Lord who reconciled them. All will know me from the least to the greatest. That's coming. That's a change of condition. But in between, there is a gradual change or transformation into the image of the Lord that we undergo through the ministry of the word, through the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the instructions of the word. So we begin to take on more and more the likeness of the Lord of glory. We begin to glorify God in our bodies which belong to God, especially now that we've been presenting them to God. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Romans 12.1-2. In this way, something of the glory of the Lord that is shown into our hearts shines forth in our bodily life. In our demeanor, in our peacefulness, in our lack of hostility or resentment, anger or judgmentalism, complaining and murmuring like the crooked and perverse generation by love by easy affection, by accepting one another as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. How can we be judgmental if we know that the Lord, the righteous judge, was judged for us and for the world, for us all? And if we love one another within the community of faith, and sometimes we're the hardest objects of love to one another, if we love one another, as Christ loved us, Jesus said then, they'll, the world will know that you're my disciples. And you know what else the world will know? They will know that the Father sent me into the world to save the world. The Father sent me into the world because he loved the world. And when you love each other as I've loved you, the world begins to see the love that sent me into the world to save the world. And that God intended not to condemn the world, but to save the world through me, Jesus said. 
And God has done this. He has done it. Pastor Messick, you said it in your prayer. He has done this. It's done. He has reconciled the condemned world to himself. Thank you, Father, for us gathering here today in freedom. Thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here, to speak from the heart, to receive in our heart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Words that echo his word to tell us die, it's finished. Words that echo his after word, peace. Grant us, Father, the privilege and the joy of going forth with the word of reconciliation. You have entrusted it to the church. Help us to carry it forth. That word of reconciliation is the word of the cross. Foolishness to the intelligentsia of this age, perhaps, but to those who are believing it, it's the power of God. You've chosen the foolishness of preaching to save people in time. So, Father, in between these two great alterations, the one of our situation and the one of our condition, we pray that you'll change us from glory to glory as we look into the mirror of the word and are changed by the Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, into the image of the one we talk about so that when we talk about him, people will listen and people will see the Lord in us as we follow after peace with them. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.